Tonight, as you grab your Bible, we're going to be in the book of Matthew, starting in verse, I mean, chapter 6. We're going to be 6, 8, and 14 this uh, evening. But before we get there, I want to just think back to about a year ago. March 16th, 2020. I had just come back from a six-night trip to Cozumel, and I had heard through the news and all of that that this thing called coronavirus was causing a bunch of people to do a bunch of crazy things. So all of these people, supposedly, as we were watching from Mexico, have been buying a bunch of toilet paper, right? We, we heard about that. And we heard that things were getting kind of crazy, but we didn't really know what was going on. So we flew back in late Sunday night. We drove in. I went to work on Monday, and I told Carla, I said, hey, our refrigerator's bare. Uh, our pantry's empty. I'm going to run to H-E-B tonight when I get off work and just grab us some stuff for the next few weeks. It's like we're going to be staying home. They're talking about these wearing these masks, but I don't think anybody's going to do it. Uh, so I go to H-E-B. Um, it was like a Mad Max post-apocalyptic scene, right? I didn't realize that there could only be like a few dented apples in the whole produce section. I really wasn't worried about produce. I was like, all right, we'll get to the meat. We need our protein. We need this to sustain us. And so I go, and the whole meat aisle, the, the, the freezer side, the refrigerator side, all you could see was like that red, like plasticky stuff that everything sits on. There was no chicken. No beef. There were five packages of pork chops. I was like, well, this is what, right? Like, we've been gone for a week and a half, and this is what the, you know, Texas has turned into. Students weren't even here, and yet everybody is freaked out. So I, I grabbed two packages of pork chops, and I just go, okay, we're set on toilet paper, and we're just going to figure out how to cook pork chops in fun ways for as long as we can and see what happens. See, fear... There was plenty of toilet paper for everybody, right? Like, we would have lasted. There was plenty of food for everybody, but it was like this mega snowstorm, hurricane, uh, tornado, all wrapped together, was hitting our company, I mean, our country and our city, and we had to just buy everything because we all we do is make milk, I mean, drink milk and eat sandwiches, you know, with all of our bread anytime those things happen, right? So I was so confused, but we saw that again with Snowpocalypse a few weeks ago where milk and bread and toilet paper begin flying off the shelves because everybody's fearful that what am I going to do if I run out of those three necessities? See, fear causes us to do things that don't make sense. And tonight I want to sit in that idea of fear. Because I've realized through talking with you students and through even my life experience, fear has become a really major issue for too many of us. I tried this year to purchase Carlin a new car three separate times. Three times they sat a sheet of paper with a very good car right across from me in a fair price because I'm a pretty good negotiator, I think. Or at least they make me feel that way. And twice I got such cold feet and such an upset stomach that I just had to leave because I was so afraid. What if this car three years from now breaks down one time? What if the tires go flat and I made a wrong decision? All, all of these things just kind of swelled in me, and that is so uncommon to who I am. But fear has really been sitting on me in the last three, four months. Maybe you experience similar things. Maybe you fear making a decision or not making a decision. 
Maybe if you're making the wrong decision or an unwise decision or a hasty decision. Or what happens if you don't even make a decision at all? And, and all of these things create this fear that we become so afraid that we have to make the right decision at the right time at the, with the right people and everything. And if we mess anything up along the way, then it's all going to come crashing down. So I got to ask you that question. What are some of the things that you fear? They weigh heavy on you. I'm not talking about the snakes and spiders, even though he made the snakes thing really scary. All right? So that's a new fear I have. I'm like, make sure our door's shut because I really don't want to. I'm sleeping on the bottom bunk. I don't want a snake crawling up there. But what are your real fears? What are the things that rob you of your sleep? What are the things that consume your mind that when you start thinking of them, you start to sweat? What are those things that you don't even want to think about so you avoid every time they pop into your mind? What do you fear? Is it failure? A failed test, a failed class, a failed interview? Because failure in one thing means you're a failure in everything. Do you fear getting hurt? And because you're so afraid of getting hurt or being rejected that you're not even willing to put yourself out there? You're not even willing to apply or to try your best because if you try your best and you get rejected, then where do you go with there? What, what, what can you turn to? Do you fear missing out? Right? We know about FOMO. You, you get so worried that a better option is going to come around, and so you're always just paralyzed with analysis, right? You're sitting there going, well, what if? What if something else comes? What if something better? Do you fear messing up? How do I know this is the right major for me? How do I know that's the right job, the right city, the right internship? Am I going to mess everything up? If I choose incorrectly here, have I ruined everything that I hoped for and God wants to do with me? Do you fear loneliness? That inner critic within you tells you that no one likes you, no one wants to be around you, no one will ever accept you. You'll never measure up. Do you fear that you're too fat, too skinny, too tall, too short, too bland, too boring, too weird, too quirky, too much, too dumb, too everything? Do you fear uncertainty? I don't know what I'm going to do this summer. Heck, I don't even know how I'm going to get everything done this week. Do you fear that when I graduate in a year and a half, I, I don't know where I'm going to turn, where I would even want a job? How do I even know what job I should take? I'm just about to graduate in this major, and I don't even know what this major does. But I have to figure something out to do it. Fear robs us of today because we're so focused on tomorrow. We miss out on what's going on. And see, fear is real. We fear our health. We fear our possessions. We, we fear security and safety. We fear change, but we also fear staying the same. We fear for ourselves, for our family, for our friends, for our grandparents. We fear for today, for tomorrow, for next year, and for what happened last night. We live in a constant state of fear. How many of you have feared something probably in the last month? Okay. That wasn't the question I was going to ask, but thank you for uh, paying attention. How many of you have feared something in the last month that didn't even come true? But it gnawed at you. You almost got sick over it. 
you got so consumed and so concerned with, oh, did I say the right thing to that person? Oh, did I turn this in? Oh, did this go right? Did I do okay on this? That you were so worried and you played a thousand what-ifs out. It didn't even happen. But it consumed and controlled everything. So tonight we're going to talk about that fear, and the first place we're going to turn is Matthew chapter 6. Starting in verse 25, Jesus is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. He has been teaching about the Beatitudes, how we should live. He has taught that we are to be salt and light. He has told us that we should not only worry about adultery, but about lust. Not only worry about not murdering people, but not being angry at them. That our yeses should be yeses, our noes should be noes. He has taught us how to pray. He has taught us how to fast. He is going to teach us now how to not be anxious. Journey 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Verse 27, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, remember, he's a pretty rich dude. Yes, he had a bunch of concubines and wives, as Cooper told us, but he also had a lot of money. Solomon in all his glory was never arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much, so much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus here is teaching us about do not be anxious. And I want to pull off on a tangent for a quick second. There's two types of anxiety. One, some of you have been diagnosed with. You may see a counselor for you. may take medicine because of you know that you have this feeling. Maybe you've learned coping mechanisms and you are fighting anxiety on a diagnosable disorder. Okay? What Jesus is talking about right now is not necessarily directed about the biological and brain chemistry issue within you. However, that doesn't give you an excuse not to try to listen to this and to fight anxiety. Okay. Sometimes we experience anxiety just like we experience a sickness within us. Jesus is not here picking on those people, neither should we. This is not just be tougher. Oh, you're just a sinner. No. Those people do not need to hear this as Jesus just piling on that, yes, I'm already not enough, and now you're just adding it to it. Because I'm diagnosed with anxiety, and here you are talking about don't be anxious. Okay. However... Even those who are taking medicines for it or seeing a counselor for it, we all fall into this idea of just general anxiety. This is what Jesus is talking about. It's the choice here of worrying and being nervous and feeling uneasy about something that is upcoming. Jesus says we must not allow this type of anxiety to come into our lives. He actually says it's a lack of faith. When we're so concerned about what we're going to eat and drink. When we're so concerned about tomorrow. And see, that's the first thing I want you to understand that fear does. Fear robs you of today because you're so afraid of tomorrow. It robs you of what God is wanting to do in and through you today because you're so consumed and concerned with tomorrow. In Matthew 6, what Jesus is teaching us is fear reveals what we value. He is revealing to us that we value what we're eating and drinking and what we're wearing way more. All these 
things of life, way more than the things of God. C.S. Lewis teaches it this way. He says there's first things and second things. First things are God and his will. Second things are all the things that we think will make us happy and successful. And then he asks the question, which do you focus on more? First things, God and his will. Or the second things, the things that you think are going to make you happy. What are you focusing on more? What are you pursuing more? First things or second things? Jesus uses this idea of birds and flowers. It's not meant to demean our faith, but it's meant to reveal us our Father. See, what he is saying to us is, if God will take care of the birds, they don't have savings accounts, they don't have debit cards, they can just go, all right, I want two worms tonight, and I want them, you know, I'm trying to eat healthy, so give me the grilled ones. Right? Like, they don't get to store up for the winter, right? They're not the Ice Age little squirrel running around with this whole harvest of nuts sitting there, right? No, they have to rely every single day for food. If God takes care of them, who do not bear his image, who do not have a relationship with him, how much more will he take care of us? Then he looks at the flowers of the field. If he clothes them, if he provides for them and, and beauty on them, how much more will he take care of us? See, fear reveals what we value. Very few of us have ever had to worry, or will ever have to worry, about if we're going to eat or drink and if we have clothes. Our worries center on what we want to choose to eat or drink and what we want to wear. Many of us have had problems because, oh, I don't want that, or, oh, I don't want to wear that. Crumb and I, I'll throw myself in, that way I'm not being mean, she's not here. <laughs> go into our closet and go, I have nothing to wear. As I look at 35 shirts. Are you kidding? Right, like, we complain not about necessities, but niceties. We worry about the trivial matters, not the important matters. We fear, if I'm being honest, our ability to choose, not whether we're going to be taken care of. Consider the things you feared in the last month. How many of them really matter that much? How many of them, if the worst possible scenario came true, would really change your life that much? And before you go, well, I mean, I really was worried about a test. Okay. You can fail a class and still graduate. There's people in here that are going to prove that. <laughs> but how many of the fears are preferential, not vital? How many of the things that you have feared would stop the will of God working out in your life? Or would they just stop your will for your life? It's interesting that when we fear something, it consumes everything. It's why we spend 10 hours studying for one test. It's why we lose sleep every night over this one issue. It's why all of our headspace is given over to this one thing that we fear. And it's why we press F5, F5, F5. I think that's the refresh button still. It's why we're refresh, refresh, refresh to see has that email from that internship that we applied for come back. They said they were going to get out to us on Monday. Did we get it? It consumes us and it controls us. 
And fear, for too many of us, consumes and controls everything that we do. Jesus says, verse 30, O you of little faith. That's going to lead us to our second point. Fear reveals our lack of faith. Fear reveals our lack of faith. Matthew 8, starting in verse 23, Jesus has just taught, and a bunch of people say, we want to be your disciples. He says, okay, great. I'm just going to tell you, it's not really easy. Um, it's not a life of luxury and uh, praise all the time. And so most of them go away. And it says in verse 23, and when he got into the boat, only his disciples followed him. And behold, there was a great storm that arose on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, and he was asleep. You know these stories. And they went and they woke him up and they said, Save us, Lord. I envision in my interpretation that going to Jesus is their last step. They have been fighting this storm all night. They have been tending the sails. They have been uh, shoring up everything else you do. I don't know how to sail, so I'm just guessing, right? Like, they've been doing everything they can. Water and waves are coming over the bow. That's a thing on a ship. And they're getting super nervous. So they go in a last-ditch effort. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And he rose and he rebuked the winds and the waves. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled and said, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? These are experienced fishermen who have fought raging seas before, but this storm is different. Bigger, stronger, mightier. They can't handle it, so they're freaking out. They cry out to Jesus, save us. But what does Jesus do? He rebukes them before he rebukes the waves. Oh, you of little faith. Some may argue, but at least they ran to Jesus. But doesn't that show that they have faith? I think Jesus would argue, no, the, the really ones that would have faith would have come and slept in the hole with me. Knowing that God still is in control and he's not just going to let us perish. And if he did, it's for his glory. Jesus would say, not just seeking me. Real faith is believing and trusting me. Following me completely. Jesus is disappointed in his disciples. When you lay in bed fearful, how often does faith come to mind? If you're anything like me, you're playing what-if statements in your head. Okay, well, I can do this, and if that goes wrong, then I can do this and that, and then that will make up for it, and it'll be okay. Instead of just going, if it goes wrong, God, I, I don't know what to do, but I know you know what to do. Rather than playing what-if, God, what do we, why don't we say, what, God, do you want to do? It's really like a cheesy movie. What's right before us is what will save us, and yet it's overlooked. And instead, we work, we study, we fret, we worry, we play every, every what-if scenario. We plan, we prepare, we anticipate everything that ever could or might go wrong. And all the while, we never have any faith. We are like the disciples, stressed, tending sails, scared, sleepy, not knowing what to do, but knowing we have to do something. We have to save this ship. We have to figure it out. We are alone at sea with nowhere to turn, no one to help, stranded, scared, and fearful. Is that how you feel? I was a math major in college, and uh, probably one of my favorite classes was my discrete mathematics class. We did a lot of if-then statements, right? You know the transitive property. If A is bigger than B, 
and B is bigger than C, then A must be bigger than C, right? Aggie fans use this a lot. Well, we lost to Clemson by this, and they lost to Clemson by this, so then we must be better than them. And sorry, that was too much, Cameron. Wasn't it? Sorry. It's okay. Yeah, he did that. Uh, so here's the problem, students. We've carried discrete mathematics into places it doesn't need to come. We play these games of if-then statements. If I do this, then I'll be able to do this. And if I can do that, then I can get this job. And if I get that job, then I can get this. And then the end result is happiness. But the problem is, not only do we believe that, and that's false, but we believe the inverse. If this doesn't go right, then that won't go right, and that won't go right, and then there's no way to ever achieve happiness. And I've used this illustration, I think, before, but it's like when I was growing up playing the Nintendo and the Sega, you didn't have memory cards. So when you passed the level, like you just had to keep going. There was no checkpoints. There was no respawn. You, you just didn't get to go, oh, I'm going to just save it here, and I'll come back and beat the next level. No. You had to leave that machine on overnight. And when you sat down to play it, and it, you got nervous. Your palms were sweaty. Your heart was racing. Mom was distracting you, calling out about pizza rolls or chicken nuggets. And you're like, not now, Mom. I've got to cross this level. And yet, I really believe that's how your life has been since you were 14 years old. What you make in ninth grade matters in this. What you make in here and you this. And you got to get this on a standardized test. You got this for your application and this for your resume. And then you got to have a resume. And then you thought, oh, I made it to college. Well, now you got to do everything else. But it's just ratcheted up and the difficulty more hard. I mean, now we've moved from expert to legendary. And it, it just becomes more and more difficult. Each advancement is not a resting point, but a new starting point that is more demanding, more challenging, and a more important level. You thought algebra was hard, then you get into modern algebra. And you're like, what? Where would the numbers go? Like, it's awful. Everything's theoretical now. See, this is where we're sitting. Completely dependent upon ourselves to achieve what God has called us to do. And sadly, students, it doesn't get any more simple or easy. Today, what I was supposed to do was prepare for this retreat. At 9 o'clock, 45 minutes after I dropped Cooper off, his school said, Hey, yeah, he can't stay. Um, he's not following directions. This has happened too many times this week. you got to come pick him up. Then um, I look out back and I go, oh my goodness, our backyard has not been cut and the weeds are this high. So at 1.30 this afternoon when I was planning on heading up to the church to start preparing these lessons, like practice some, not writing, I wrote them already. Uh, I'm out there sweating, cutting the grass. The demands of life just ratchet up. And so right now, yeah, you can spend 10 hours studying for a test. You can eat at midnight. You can uh, just sleep if you ever want to or not. But when responsibilities increase and in difficulty and there's people more and more dependent upon you guys, it doesn't get any easier. We have to understand how to balance these things in life and how to understand and fear the real things that are fearful and learn to be faithful in the other things. So we've gotten off on tangents. We're getting back into it. Fear reveals where you place your faith. 
Is your faith in yourself? Are you tending the sails, scared before you run down to Jesus? Here's the real question I want you to think about. Are you the author and the architect of your future? Do you determine if your life matters or makes a difference? Does your happiness and success rely on your performance? Because that's how we act. You may use language that, oh yeah, God's called me to be this, and I'm just trying to do this. But you feel like he's not lifting a finger to make a reality what he's called you to do? Oh, you of little faith. God equips you for what he calls you to. I like to think of it this way. Too often we think of God as like a, a wife with Pinterest. All right, follow me on this. Not sexist here. He's just up there pinning all these great things that we should just do in our life. And then the wife with Pinterest just looks at the husband and says, okay, I want to shiplap that. <laughs> like, I, I just, I need that to be granite now. I don't know how we've lived without subway tiles on this spot. <laughs> You got to just figure it out. See, in a lot of ways, we look the same way, right? Like, God has called me to be a nurse, and then he's just going, figure it out. <laughs> Good luck getting in. Super competitive. God, God I, I want you to be an engineer. <laughs> yeah, Cal 3 is pretty hard. Hope you get through it. <laughs> See, I think that's what we, we feel, that, that we are on our own to achieve what God has called us to do, and in forgetting that what he has called us to, he will equip us for. And yeah, we may not need it. Who cares about the pressures we put on ourselves? Are we being faithful to what he is actually calling us to, or are we trying to be faithful to what we want? It's like uh, we're saying, God, I mean, you're a pretty good writer of my future, but give me the pen for a second. I got a few ideas, J.K. Rowling. I, I can come up with a new few things. So, third one, we got to keep moving, sorry. I get off a little bit. Fear reveals where we place our faith. The last story is Peter walking on water, Matthew 14. To paraphrase, Jesus has shown up. He fed the 5,000. He shows up while the disciples are out in the middle of the sea. He's walking on the water. It's about 4.30 in the morning. They're freaking out. Is this a ghost? No, it's me, Jesus. Oh, cool. Awesome. Peter gets the idea. If you can walk on water, I bet you I can too. So he says, Jesus, will you call out to me and allow me to walk on water? And he says, come on, Peter. So Peter steps out of the boat and begins to walk on the water. It's amazing. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. How do you see wind? When he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. Lord, save me. See, in faith, Peter's walking. In fear, he's sinking. Jesus reached out his hand, took a hold of him, and sang to him that third line once again, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Faith in Jesus is swallowed by fear. Fear overtakes Peter as his eyes shift from Jesus to the waves. The effects of the wind are now scaring him. Here's what I want you to get from this. Fear can strike even when you're walking in faith. Fear can win even when you are walking in faith. Sometimes it's spiritual arrogance. Sometimes it's spiritual ignorance. Sometimes it's just spiritual ambivalence. Like, uh-uh, I'm just kind of going, who cares? But fear can still strike. See, most of us go, and if I was ever bold enough to step out of the boat and onto the waves, 
Surely God would make it a flat like a lake city, right? Calm as can be. Glassy. The second any turbulence comes up, we begin to sink. Forgetting that what God is already doing through us, we're walking on waves, is impossible. But now logic comes in and we go, oh, we can't handle waves. We, we can handle walking on a straight sea, but not a wave sea. All right, let's keep, let's wrap it some way. Here we go. Pakluda, Jonathan Pakluda, in his book, Welcome to Adulting, says, Worries reveal your idols. Hmm. You're worried about the test? Why? Is your idol a GPA? You're worried about a job? Why? Is your idol your prestige? Your salary? He says this, Fear and worry are rooted in two questions. Is God good and is he in control? Faith believes both. God is good and he's in control. Fear disbelieves both. God's not good and he's not in control. Fear reveals where you place your faith. And for too many of us, our faith is in what we can do, what we can achieve, what we can accomplish. For too many of us, our faith is in a job, a degree, a spouse, a salary, a goal, a hope, a dream. For too many of us, we have abandoned a trust in God, and we now trust in what the world says will satisfy us, sustain us, keep us safe, and make us secure. We believe that we can make it, we can attain it, we can reach it, and when we do, it will be happiness, fulfillment, rest, bliss, as we sit at fall retreat, that we can create a heaven on earth. But what it promises, it doesn't provide. We're left unsatisfied, unhappy, unfulfilled, incomplete, empty. It's like there's a carrot on the end of the stick. And we forget that it's a carrot. Who wants really a carrot? Right? Like We bite into it and we're like, that didn't satisfy me like I thought it would. Because it's a carrot. <laughs> but, but then we think the next thing is not going to be a carrot. We think it's cake. And so we go and we grab the cake in that first bite. It's pretty good. But then you know what? When we get another bite and another bite, and we kind of feel sick to our stomach. And then we start keep chasing it, and actually what we think is good for us is actually turning into bad for us. And we start seeing that cake in different places on us. And so then we kind of get tired of cake, and cake never really hit like it hit the first time. Right? Like, it's just not as sweet. Sorry. And, and we're stuck. We have put all of our passion and our hope and our dreams in chasing after what doesn't satisfy. And we're terrified not to catch the cake. We spend our whole life on the hamster wheel running after that cake. And the one or two times we catch it, it leaves us wanting more. Psychologists have done studies, and anticipation is actually a stronger dopamine release than experience. Does that make sense? Like, thinking about the vacation is way more fun than the vacation is. Thinking about the job is way more fun than the job. I see Carol over there. Thinking about getting a dog is way more awesome than the dog when he eats your textbook, right? The anticipation of things is what drives us. All right. First, I mean, Second Chronicles 20 is where we're ending tonight. We've gone into a bunch of things. Fear reveals what we value. Fear 
reveals our lack of faith, and fear reveals where we place our faith. 2 Chronicles 20 gives us a help. All right, if you need to find Chronicles, here we go. We get to Joshua, Judges, and then we get to Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. If you get to Psalm, you've gone too far. If you get to Isaiah, you've gone really too far. If you get to Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John, okay, just start back over and start going again. All right, 2 Chronicles 20. I'm going to read you this. A lady named Amy Baker writes an amazing book. It's called Picture Perfect. I highly encourage it. I have it in my office. She says this, 2 Chronicles 20, we find that the country Judah is about to be attacked. Woohoo, okay, but catch this. Judah's king, Jehoshaphat, learns that a coalition of nations is advancing against him and a large army is getting ready to attack him. As king, he knows what happens when an army overtakes you. Catch this. There's slaughter, rape, bellies of pregnant women are ripped open, men are commanded to lie down so that the victors can parade across their backs, crushing their internal organs. Women and children are taken captive into slavery. Dead bodies are left like refuse in the street. Kings are tortured and killed. If there's ever a time to fear failure, this would be it. Being a loser in this situation, she ends, will have grave consequences. Okay, I think we've painted that picture pretty clearly. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 3. What does it say? Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaim the fast throughout all of Judah. He's not worried about battle strategy right now. He's not fortifying the, the weak points. He actually isn't even fattening up his people with, with energy. No, there's a declared a fast, and they're seeking the Lord. And all of Judah, verse 4, assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Okay? Then we jump down to verse 12. They kind of pray to God saying, God, we need you to work on our behalf. We are your people. You are our God. Verse 12. Excuse me, not 20, 12. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but catch this. But our eyes are on you. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. If there's ever needed to be a theme verse for some of you in this room, this is it. As you deal with the rejection of things that you were chasing after, as you deal with confusion over what I should major in and what I should be when I grow up, as you deal with the questions of where to live and what to do, <laughs> many of you are going to be saying that same thing. I don't have a clue what to do. But where are your eyes? Peter's eyes were on the waves, not on Jesus. Where are your eyes? See, faith is a choice against fear. Paul writes to Timothy, God did not give us a spirit of fear in 1 Timothy, or in 2 Timothy 1, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. We must be like Jehoshaphat here and say, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't know what next step to take, but we're chasing after you. We're going to follow you. We're going to listen to you. John Wesley said, the one who fears God need fear nothing else. For God's the one who clothes the field, who feeds the bird, who calms the storm, who walks on the waves, and he wants to work in and through you. He is a loving Father who has invited you into a relationship. And he is calling you to fully surrender to him, to believe him, to trust him. To put your faith and your trust in every step of your life in his control. Because you believe that he is good and that he is in control. 
So you can step out of the boat. You can go to sleep in the hole. You can release the anxieties that are overwhelming you. You don't have to have every answer because you know where to look. How do we combat fear? We turn our eyes to the Lord. Yeah, I am overwhelmed and I am consumed by this question about this grade or this test or this job or this internship or this summer or this decision. But God, I am looking to you and you alone. And you know what? I'm going to take steps I think align with who you are and what you call me to do. I don't demand an answer verbally. But I'm going to, as we talk about tomorrow night, try to please you in everything I do. And I really think if I'm trying to please you along the way, then I'll probably be going down the right steps. So let me pray for us. Cindy uh, and Coop, y'all come on up. As we pray, I just want your head bowed, eyes closed, and I just want you to consider what is your fear saying about you? Is it revealing your lack of faith? Is your fear showing that honestly what you value is not God's will and His way, it is your will and your way? That the things that you have feared over the last month are so trivial in light of what God is wanting to do, that they are all second things. You haven't once spent a moment fearful that am I pleasing God? And you've spent hours fearing that test, that grade, that job, that relationship. Is your fear revealing your lack of faith that you are struggling to believe that God is good and in control? That you have to go and tend to the sails and save the ship? Is your fear revealing that your faith is placed in what you can do? And so when the waves show up, you go, well, I can walk on a glassy sea, but I can't do a turbulent. What's fear robbing of you of today? so consumed and controlled by tomorrow what have you missed for some of you you don't know if you've ever really surrendered your life to God that you're going you know I'm consumed by all those things and I don't even know who this God is to know that this weekend there are tons of people around that I would love to speak with you about introducing you to a God that we surrender our lives to and give control of. And that if we live our lives in awe of Him, revering Him, trusting Him and chasing Him, that all the second things will work out. 
says in the end of Matthew 6, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. When we seek the first things, the second things come around. 